When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 334th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an Australian comedy writer and performer who shot to international fame on June 19th, 2018, with the worldwide debut of her Netflix special, Nanette, which paired punchlines with personal revelations to tell the story of, quote, a broken woman who has rebuilt herself, close quote. Time said it, quote, kickstarted a global conversation, close quote, and the New York Times called it, quote, an international sensation, the most talked about, written about, shared about comedy act in years, close quote. Indeed, everyone, it seemed, had an opinion about Nanette and its creator. Fans included the actress writer Emma Thompson, who said, quote, I've never come across any single artist who's changed my perspective on the world more, close quote. Detractors, meanwhile, objected to classifying it as stand-up comedy at all, describing it instead as a lecture, a TED Talk, or a one-woman show. Whatever you want to call it, it was recognized with a Peabody Award, and its creator won a primetime Emmy for Best Writing for a Variety Special. Now, not even two years later, she is back with another Netflix special, Douglas, which is very different, but also sure to get people talking. I'm talking, of course about Hannah Gadsby. Over the course of our conversation, the 42-year-old and I discussed her hard road to comedy and to self-discovery, her recent autism diagnosis and how the neurological disorder affects her life and work, how she confronted the sudden attention that came with Nanette and the daunting task of following it, plus much more. And so with thanks to Hannah and without further ado, let's go to that conversation. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And, uh, I guess before we talk about anything work-related, I, I just want to ask, how are you doing during this weird time and where are you doing it? Um, I'm, I'm okay. Where are you doing it? <laughs> uh, I'm okay. Um, I'm in regional Victoria in Australia, so there's plenty of space. You know, I'm fortunate, so I'm doing okay. And I, I like quiet time. Good. I'm enjoying doing publicity like this. Yeah, it's, it's probably uh, a lot better than having to schlep all over the place. I'm able to do a lot more. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, as I move into the, the real questions, I just want to mention, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm assuming that a lot of people, but not everyone who's going to be listening to this podcast will have seen both of your Netflix specials. So for their purposes, a lot of this may, you know, some of it may be familiar, but I'm hoping you won't mind if we retread some territory because I'm hoping we're also bringing in new folks to the fold. And and so to that end, I guess I would just begin by asking you, as we do on each episode, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? <laughs> Straight jump in. Yes. Um, I was born and raised on the northwest coast of Tasmania in a small town called Smithton that is remarkable for not being. <laughs> and my dad was a, a, a mathematics teacher. Uh, my mother was a hairdresser by trade, but um, she only cut her children's hair by the time I was along, and she was a cleaner at the local golf club. Yes, and I, I that actually leads nicely into the next question because I was going to ask sort of what you remember being a big part of your childhood, and uh, I was a little surprised to learn, especially having seen Douglas, where golf comes in for a bit of a beating, that you were actually a, a championship level junior golfer. So that was part of your childhood. I'd love to know about anything else that really um, stands out as well. You know, I lived in, I was part of a big family, youngest of five. So we just was a we were pretty tight knit group. So that was that was a large part of my life, just existing in a large family. That really is a self-sustaining entertainment entity. <laughs> and I did play golf. Uh, it's a sort of small town, you know, that you're either getting into trouble or you play sport, you know. And so I used to play hockey as a, when I was really little. You know, when I was 11, I had a knee reconstruction Ooh. and I couldn't. <laughs> Couldn't play anymore, and so Mum said, "Well, why don't you play slow hockey?" And that's golf. <laughs> and I turned out to be okay. You know, it's a small country town, so playing golf there is not the same as playing golf in the world at large. <laughs> you know, it was a, a little nine-hole course, and it meant that you know I could just go out for long walks, and my parents knew where I was, and you know, and I was quite handy. It's quite handy. I think I got down to a five, wow. a five handicap. Mm-hmm. Um, but I stand by everything I say in Douglas. <laughs> well, specifically that uh, it's not a coincidence that they're played at country clubs. <laughs> I love that. So um, I guess if we were to go back and track down classmates of yours from the equivalent of 
junior high school, high school, stuff like that. How would they remember you? Were you the the class clown, as people might suspect, or were you more introverted? I mean, we've we've got a sense of that from your specials. You talk about it a little bit, but I'm just curious what you think they would remember. I think I was nice enough. I think I was. I flew below the radar a little bit. I mean, I got teased a bit. But I think everyone gets teased at school and I don't remember being teased more than some people I went to school with, so I don't I don't like to think of it as a big deal. You know, there was some genuine bullying going on and it wasn't aimed at me. I don't know. I, I've always struggled to understand how people see me and I don't... I, I'm always jarred, by the way, when people say, oh, I remember you, you were this kind of person. I'm like, was I? Because <laughs> I, I tend to live inside my head, so how people see me is not... I, So I would be interested to know how people see me. Mm -hmm. It's interesting now with social media, though. There was a a period of my life when social media, (laughs) I'm that old, (laughs) wasn't a thing. But then it it came about and you start looking up people you went to school with and you're like, oh, my gosh, they're they're adults, they're human, they've evolved. They're (laughs) not who I remember them to be. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a fun, jarring situation. Yes. Well, something that I've learned from your specials is that in Australia, up until as recently as 1997, homosexuality was a crime. Is that right? Uh, uh, that's Tasmania. Tas- so, oh, excuse me, Tasmania, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't a national law. It was, you know, a state situation, and uh, it was specifically, uh, you know, sodomy, so it didn't really apply to me. <laughs> well, so you were you were 19, though, in 1997, and if those were the prevailing attitudes that we could extrapolate, probably applied to the rest of the LGBTQ yeah, community. Absolutely. I guess if it's not too personal to ask, I would be curious to know, had you by that age already recognized that you were gay and were you already, had you already encountered bigotry yourself or was that after that. Yeah, I was, part, I was, I mean, the worst part of that story is I was bigoted. So, you know, that's the, because you grow up in a place like that, that's all you ever hear. You really don't hear dissenting voices, you know, and most of it's casual, most of it's casual, but there's always that sort of bubble of, of violence under, you know, like it's, it's always a possibility and you understand that. So, you know, there's that intersection of who I understood myself to be and and who I understood the world, you know, what the what I understood the world thought of people like me. And, you know, there's a good period of time where I I was on team hate what I am. Even though you, so you, you did know that you were gay at a, quite, at, at yeah, a young age. Yeah, yeah, you have, you know, and then you just, you ram yourself even deeper into the closet. Like you don't get to just decide to change your worldview because the world shapes your view. Your world shapes your view. So, you know, that's a process. And when you're a child, it's kind of impossible to undo a worldview that you didn't really have a large hand in informing. You talk about in Nanette coming out to your mom and even within your own household, there wasn't an immediate warm response to this notion no. of, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's kind of a... A very, you know, people, especially from people from, you know, the country, that's kind of a common thing. But what I, you know, what I like to focus on, though, is that the, the, the change did occur. You know, it's very easy, you know, this, to, to focus on that flashpoint where it was toxic and awful and I, I don't 
say that it was great, but everyone in the story evolved, and that's even that is great. Well, in in uh, Nanette, you share the fact that in your early years there were just numerous different traumas that come up and I guess is it I guess it would be weird to say spoiler alert here but I I will uh I will inject that before I note you know you were talking about childhood sexual abuse uh, a physical assault at 17 raped by two men in your 20s I wondered were th- maybe I missed this in the special but were those things that you had ever been able to talk about to anyone prior to Nanette or was Nanette truly a kind of opportunity to share that you just unburden yourself of those things no I'd, I'd spoken to people you know here and there and you know but it never could be formed part of my known narrative even though the trauma of it certainly formed a huge part of my struggle to keep moving forward in life so you know it wasn't like I couldn't talk about it I just knew that it wasn't People didn't want to hear about it. People don't want to hear about it. And that's, you know, why would you? Ruins a nice day. <laughs> well, so uh, I guess what was your thought process, your outlook of the world at the time when you go off to university, I believe first in Tasmania, then uh, moving over to the mainland to pursue this degree in art history and curatorship, which you've talked about when, you know, at that, I guess, what initially do you think drew you to that subject matter and and what did you imagine it would lead to after your graduation I um I was drawn to art history you know when I was in high school I used to you know love art history the art history books and there's like windows into a world I didn't understand but felt like I I it was more accessible in a a book with pictures it wasn't just history it was definitely specifically art history I still like my books with pictures in it so it's sort of been a, I've always been fascinated. The, studying at university was, I took, uh, when I finished school, I had quite a number of years just drifting. I worked in a supermarket on a farm and whatnot. And then eventually I applied to go just do a Bachelor of Arts at, at university, which is, I don't know what the equivalent is there. And then after a year in, in Hobart, I, I decided to, to take a, a major and that's not offered in many places. So I got a, I applied, but it was really just to get out of Tasmania. And so was that a very big change in your life to, had you ever really spent much time in mainland Australia before that? No, I'd gone to play in golf tournaments and that's oh, yeah? it. Really? But, you know, the, so that experience of Australia was nothing like the, the world that I was going to enter. You know, when you play golf, you're entering into worlds of elite comfort and that's not where I belong. So, you know, I don't think I had any idea of what the rest of us, you know, I'd only been to the country clubs. <laughs> it was, you know, I moved to Canberra, which is Australia's national capital, mm-hmm. and it's not a big place, but to me it was massive and it was very overwhelming. <laughs> but, yeah, and I didn't imagine art history would lead anywhere. Uh, one of the tricks of trauma is that it... it, it puts a stop on your ability to imagine your future. Like you just don't actually have a, an, a, you don't understand how to create future for yourself. So that, that, that there's that. Yes. Can you share, I guess I want to just make sure I have the chronology right. You graduate with your 
art history and curatorship degree in 2003. When was it that you first tried comedy for the in any format and what were the circumstances that led to that it just seems like it kind Did of I graduated in 2003 or two i well, can't remember i uh i found a your your university is is bragging on the website that it was 03 but maybe they got it wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah i reckon it, yeah no I, it, it's I, I thought it was 2002 but maybe i got around to it getting the certificate in 2003. <laughs> right. you got to fill in forms for that. Yes. Turns out you don't just finish the course. You've actually got to do paperwork to graduate. <laughs> Infuriating. Yeah, unbelievable. I did the work already. So, yeah, there's a bit of a lag yes. there. Um, but that's fine. It doesn't really matter. Who cares? Um, <laughs> I'm just confused. Yeah, 2005 I did my first ever stand-up gig and then I really, I didn't, I did three gigs in the beginning of 2005 and then didn't do any more till the beginning of 2006 and then I've not stopped. So let's let's just set the scene if we can about what led to you even attempting this for the first time in 2005. Was it just um, some people will say they were, some stand-ups who I've spoken to say they were sort of dared to do it or other people they knew were doing it. Just so curious, what motivated someone who had not to my knowledge, been particularly interested in performing in front of others or doing comedy of of any sort. You know, how do you end up in front of a microphone? Uh, Australia, in Australia, we the Melbourne International Comedy Festival runs a uh, runs a national uh, new comedy competition, and that's I've been aware of that for years. So every year, and it's sort of co-sponsored by the youth youth radio station. And so, you know, they'd always play the clips around the time that raw comedy was coming up. So I'd sort of had this then. I was sort of like, you know, so you'd hear these clips and then you're like, yeah, I get what they're doing there. Um, so that's all. Like I I entered the competition because I, you know, I'd always been aware of it because of these little clips that would be played on the radio. And then I just sort of said to a friend in I think it was 05, this one, and it was like, he's like, sorry, I could do that. Like, what an asshole. <laughs> and I said, I reckon I could do that. And he's like, yeah, actually, I reckon you would. And to be honest, you need to broaden your audience. I'm sick of being the only one. <laughs> and that's kind of how it happened. Do you remember what was your material? What did you go in there with? Well, the first one I did was really odd stuff. It was about, you know, burying my childhood dog and because he just died. He was still with my parents, so they buried him in the backyard. But I'm like, oh, <laughs> like I'm technically homeless. Like I was homeless. I didn't have anywhere to live. I was, you know, all sorts of scrappy. And I'm like, what if I still have my dog? Where do you bury a dog if you don't own your home? Like, like, and I knew enough not to give people the whole truth. It would have been too much to go, I'm homeless. I have nowhere to bury my dead dog. Like, right. like I'm sorry. But so I toned it down a bit and I'm like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where do you, you know, where do you bury a dog if, you know, you don't own your home? <laughs> and, but you can't. And because cremating a pet is really expensive. Yeah. So I ran through a few scenarios. <laughs> it's really dark and surreal stuff. I, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> how did it how did it play with the room? I, I mean, the first time I went on stage, like I absolutely owned the room. And I look back in hindsight, and it's like it had nothing to do with the material. It's just I was a creature from out of space. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> it's like, because I just walked up on stage, I had, you know, and I just walked up and I go, how do? Uh, I think I started, my first line was like, I've got a small dog. I've got my, I've got my, I've got my dog in my freezer. That's right. I've got my dog in my freezer. Because as I ran the scenarios on what to do, like I thought, how hard can it be to cremate a small dog at home? Turns out really hard. So I've just got an overcooked dog in my freezer. Like that's what, because it didn't happen, but I was taking it to its logical conclusion. Yeah, yeah. It was good, but I didn't go any further. Like people like, it's funny, but oofed. And did you feel that, were you immediately hooked with the idea of, you know, you get a great reaction to doing this. Was it immediately something you knew you wanted to do more of? Not not dealing with your dog, but performing comedy in front of, of others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, as soon as, like, I got a, a response, people reacted to me. They'd react to my facial expressions. I'd, I wasn't always aware of why people were laughing, but I knew that uh, they were, and it felt nice. It felt really nice. It felt like... You know, I was participating in the world in a way that I'd never felt like I could before. My issue was, is like I didn't know how to be involved in it. You know, there was a comedy circuit, but I didn't know how to have access to it. And I'm, I'm not very good at networking and I was appalling then. You know, and I, I'm, the longer I do this, you know, I understand, you know, there's so much more to doing anything beyond just doing what you do on stage. But so I, it took me a long time to, you know, and that's why the competition is so important to me because I wouldn't have done comedy had there not been this infrastructure around it. I wouldn't have, I, I don't know what I would have been doing. My life wasn't going great, so I can't imagine things would be great for me. And we should just note, so this was, as you say, sort of like an open mic thing associated with the Melbourne Comedy Festival and is it, and, and you one is that the way it worked? Well, the next year, the next year I entered it and um, I ended up winning it, <laughs> and I went to the national nationals, which are broadcast on on uh, uh, on TV and filmed. And I was a wild card, so I lost the state final, uh, but I was sent in as a wild card. So basically, what that means is the judges said no, but other people said, "Oh, that's a mistake." <laughs> <laughs> a save, yes. Um, so I got to the nationals, and I, I, I won that. And that's just every opportunity I've got since then has just been that from that. Is that the same thing or a different thing than raw comedy competition? Is that that is raw comedy? That is that's raw, com- the raw comedy. So that was yeah. two thousand six, and that really put you on the on the map, as you're as you're saying. And I guess it led to. Edinburgh is that the the thing that kind of directly led to that? Well, they do. They run a similar competition. Yeah. Uh, so you think so you think you're funny. I was about yeah. to say so you think you can dance. I'm like, no, that doesn't sound right because <laughs> it's not right. Um, yeah, so you think you're funny, and so I, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, and I came second. Which is a very, you know, for people outside the comedy world like myself, I didn't really fully appreciate that until I had done an episode of this podcast with. Seth Myers, who I think had a similar uh, experience there, and that's a within comedy circles. That's a that's a huge international deal, right? It's it, what's interesting about the Edinburgh Festival is it's not it's not only comedy. 
Like it's, it's theater, it's circus, it's like all the things. And it's great for comedy because it means that, you know, it's open so anyone can put on a show and they do. Oh. Uh, but it means you're able to learn how to do that. Think about comedy as this show is a life. Like people think about specials as being a thing you do for, 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 for the camera, like for a special, but you know, if you're part of the Edinburgh Fringe circuit, that's how shows evolve. Like, that's how your comedy is. Like, you're always thinking about your Edinburgh show or your Melbourne show. And that's kind of what I've always done. So I guess one question that comes up since, you know, we'll, we'll come to this more later on. But, I mean, something that you had happen after Nanette that you talk about in Douglas is that people don't quite know, some some people don't quite know how to label what it is that you do. They want to say it's a one-woman show or it's a lecture or it's a TED Talk. There's some reluctance to just acknowledge that it's stand-up comedy because it's not necessarily conventional set-up punchline as you broke it down. Was that already the kind of structure or lack of traditional structure that you were employing way back early on where it was not obvious comedy that, you know, in the way that you're saying, that's not uncommon at Edinburgh, but was that what it was for you? Yeah, like I think, you know, because you got to fill in an hour and you got to make people's time worthwhile, like you, you need to have, you know, some light and shade and, and whatnot um, to help support, you know, people's time. You know, like I felt, I've always felt for a long time I could never afford to watch me. Like I wasn't earning enough as a comedian to be able to go and watch me perform as a comedian. Mm. So I've always been really careful to, like, make sure that my shows are worth, you know, I put a lot of work into that. And so, yeah, there is a, I mean, you, the, Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Fringe is filled with comedy shows that have broken rules and, and what, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it, not like I really did give it a real nudge out with Nanette. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely <laughs> true. But, you know, the, the sorts of experimentation is sort of uh, a very common thing in Edinburgh. So was it the combination of the raw comedy competition to Edinburgh to suddenly now when you're back home or I don't know if there was now a home, how quickly that, because you're saying you you had been essentially homeless. I don't know when you get back to Australia, wherever you were living. I have a home now. You had a home at that <laughs> point. Um, uh, no, not at that point. No, I, for a very long time, lived above my brother's fruit and vegetable shop. Okay. I, he's pretty much solely responsible for me being able to follow my comedy career because he gave me somewhere to live. There was no way. I didn't have the means to be able to support myself and do comedy. Uh, so I sort of, you know, I did sh- shifts in his shop and lived above, lived above it and slowly. But if I had to pay for, you know, if I had to have paid rent and, you know, that sort of stuff, I wouldn't, it, there'd just be no career for me. And that would be the case even after those kind of early milestones, which led to some profile for you where you start doing, yeah, I think there were nine different comedy shows that you did prior to, Nanette, right? It took a few years to become solvent. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And there's not this huge circuit in Australia that there is in the US, mm. you know. And to do the circuit here, you ha- still have to travel enormous, enormous distances, you know. And there's there's a time when I would 
you know, do a gig in Sydney and not earn enough money doing the gigs in Sydney to really pay for the travel. Mm. Mm. So, you know. That's tough, yeah. And then I found $10. (laughs) (laughs) So um, can I ask about those, as things progressed, and as I said, I think about nine different, sounds like different, sets in a in a sense nine or nine different variations of your of your work were happening what were some of the topics that broadly you were dealing with you know i i know that in in the net you say you had done a lot of self-deprecating humor so i'm assuming that's a big part of it but i want to leave it to you to cover that well, my my first show uh it's called kiss me quick uh i'm full of jubes which are like a lolly here um <laughs> Uh, Candy, sorry. And it's just a thing my mum used to say. So that was pretty much the show that I was talking to in Nanette, the coming out story. So that's that was my first show. The second show, I re- when I go back through my back catalogue, my yeah. oeuvre, <laughs> I really realised that I'd been not following the rules for, from early on. But I was still using all the tools of comedy, so I was just using them wrong. Wrong. Um, So my second show was about I walked across England and broke my feet as I came off antidepressants because I'd forgotten to pack them when I went to the Edinburgh Fringe. So instead of going to see a doctor, which would have been smart but required all sorts of hoops to jump through and I'm not very good at executive function, I thought, (laughs) I've got a couple of weeks spare. I'll walk across England. There's this famous trail you can do. And it's like 13 days of hiking and I wasn't prepared and I bought new shoes. You shouldn't walk for 13 days straight on new shoes and my, I got compound fractures in my feet oh my but God. didn't know it. Like, so that was the show but I was also coming off antidepressants and sort of grappling with that. So that's like that was my second show and like if, if I was to do that now, that kind of show now with what I understand and can do now, like I've got actual skills now as a comedian that still would be great. Like that's, you know, people go, ooh, that's great. And it's like, it's just what I thought to do. So when you say you walked across England and that was your show, do you mean that you were sort of stopping at different places across the country? No, no, no. I just told the story. I just the told story the story. of it. Okay. But it was a singular linear line of me just going, and then this happened and then this happened. And ironically, the show was all about quitting the walk. So I've got form. <laughs> so I just go, and then I quit. But then I couldn't quit because I, I couldn't leave. I had the only way out was walking out, so I had to keep walking. But it was, it was what was different about it was that it was a singular narrative, like sing, one continuous story with jokes. There was jokes. It was yeah. actually funny. <laughs> and then other things, I you know, other shows I've done art lectures in my shows before. I t- talked about a lot about mental health stuff and body image stuff. So all the you know, classics. <laughs> and then how did Australian television enter the picture? I think you've done quite a bit of important stuff there on screen and behind the screen as a writer, right? I've done bits and bobs. Like nothing ever sort of like I was a sidekick for a talk show, uh, for a comic Adam Hills. And then I, I made a couple of art documentaries. So heaps of cash for those. <laughs> no cash. No cash. <laughs> and then Please Like Me was probably a, you know, a big break for me because I both wrote on that show and performed in it. I'd never been op- offered any r- real acting uh, moments. Now, was there something I had come across, I think there were a few things, where sort of in the vein of what you do in one segment of 
Douglas, hadn't you sort of worked as a, a curator or a, something in an art museum that had been morphed with comedy? Or how did that work? No, no, I'd never go. No, I used to do comedy out lectures at festivals. So I'd, I'd run up. So when I say I've done all these shows, I've also done four out lectures on top of that. So I'd, they're actually, people went to those. Like people, <laughs> people really enjoyed my art lectures. Uh, I did one on the, the Virgin Mary, an entire show on the history of the Virgin Mary in Western art. Um, I wonder if Netflix will take that as a comedy special. <laughs> Um, and I did one on uh, the history of Australian art, the, uh, the nude in art and all sorts of, and portraiture. I did one on portraiture. So those were comedy free or in, in are bringing in. No, they're, they're all funny. Yeah. Like they, yeah. Were, they were just funny, but I didn't feel confident enough to just go, this is a comedy show. Um, yeah. So, um. One of the interviews you did around the time of Nanette, I think you were saying that in the years immediately preceding that comedy routine, which which you did many times prior to it being on Netflix, you had a career that was going, it sounds like, well, that was the way it seemed to be characterized by you there, but not, you were not personally in a, in a content place. What was, was that for the reasons that are expressed in Nanette, where you see that just the political situation in the country was not great towards the LGBT community, or was it more about that you had come to sort of think more about the comedy that you had been doing and you didn't want to continue to do that? What was your, what explained the reason that you were not happy going into Nanette? No, there's, there's quite a lot of things going on. All of those things are kind of true and not true at once. But also I'd um, been diagnosed with autism and that sort of threw my world into a little bit of chaos in just in terms of like, oh, gosh, how do I understand myself? And then also, you know, my career was good but it wasn't going anywhere and I'd got to that point in my career where people... I was at the top of my game. I was creating really, really good, interesting stuff to a point. And then I just wasn't getting anywhere. And I'm like, I don't, I can't keep, I don't know what to do. You know, like, uh, you know, I, I didn't, wasn't getting opportunities to sort of help tick things over. And, you know, there's only a certain amount you can do on the this festival circuit in order to make a living. You have to then subsidise it what, with a radio gig or a TV gig and I kind of wasn't getting anything like that and I was exhausted from creating. And then there was the political climate. You know, the gay marriage debate here was particularly vicious and then I realised that I hadn't dealt with the trauma of the Tasmanian debate and that's really where that fire sparked from. Uh, so it was, it was quite a melting pot of, you know, frustrations. You know, I... You know, I was really good at what I was doing and I just felt like I felt like opportunity slipping away and my work was suffering for that lack of momentum, you know. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to write another show and I was starting to write dull show. Not dull, like I tried hard, but because I'm like I wasn't pushing myself and the boundaries as much as I had done when I was earlier and discovering the art form. And that was frustrating to me. So I guess it's 2016 when you sit down to begin work on what became the net. How long did that take? Did it just sort of pour out of you? And I guess, incidentally, 
who is Nanette? <laughs> really, the show began in 2015. I was writing it in 2015 because that's when the, the gay marriage debate kind of really kicked in. So I was sort of halfway touring a show called Dogmatic, which was pretty much a dissection of Taylor Swift's 1989 album. <laughs> like I've never done it right, really, if you think about it, but pretty funny show. Yeah. So I was halfway through doing that and I was bored with my material. Like the show was good, but I, as the gay marriage debate was unfolding, I was like, I shouldn't be talking about this. This is not actually interesting to me. It was interesting to me when I wrote it, but now I'm performing it. It's like, this is not. And, and I think my work suffered for that. If you're not interested in what you're saying, then the audience understands that. And that's when I got accused of not having enough lesbian content. <laughs> so, you know, which is all, you know, in one place, fair enough. But also I'm not just a lesbian. Like there are other facets to what I can think about, surely. But no. Um <laughs> But uh, so that's when I began writing or, you know, and I was also making a documentary on the nude in art and that was a wholly frustrating process because I kept interviewing people and challenging them on things that I thought were obvious. It's like, you know, I was in an exhibition it was full of nudes and I'm like, you know, they're all women. What's going on here? Like, you know, why am I looking at Picasso's penis draped over this young girl's face? And like, it's beautiful. And I'm like, is it? <laughs> and in the editing process, I kept going, well, this is annoying. Let's put this in. And like, let's not rock the boat. And I was just furious. I'm just like, you know, why not? Just to be clear, who would this, this documentary was non, there was not intended to be a comedic aspect. It was because of your, your, your passion for and knowledge about art history. And it was going to no, go away. No, I mean, well, you see, the problem with me is, it's like nobody would get me as an art historian to make an art history documentary, right? That's generally reserved for crusty old men. <laughs> or my favourite, the the nun, Sister Wendy, if you don't know. Oh, I love her. But rest in peace. But I um, so no one was going to say, yeah, we appreciate the way you think about art, but we're going to get you to do it because you're funny when you talk about stuff. But they wanted me to keep it simple and not challenge the narrative. But... The way I think, I'm just like, I don't like the narrative. I'm going to challenge it. It's like, you're just here for the jokes. I'm like, the joke is the narrative. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I understand why I couldn't do what I do because, you know, when you make a film, like there's a lot of money involved and, you know, the the institution that I was, you know, is half paying for it so it doesn't help that I then make a mockery of their curators, right? <laughs> I get it. But I was used to working in comedy where I can just stand on stage and go, well, this is shit. Yeah. Uh. So all that sort of stuff. So that was a wholly frustrating experience for me because I'm just like, you know, there's so many artists who I have, you know, we revere who behaved badly and I wasn't allowed to talk about that. And I'm like, I don't want to say their art's rubbish, but we need to talk about the way they behave is bad. But the only way we could seem to talk about is, like, romanticising. Like, they can't be artists unless they abuse women. Isn't that lovely? I'm like, no, it's horrible. <laughs> so that went, that fed a lot into Nanette. And that, I guess, just coincidentally, but maybe not really in terms of Nanette, that coincides roughly with the beginning of this whole new wave of men behaving inappropriately, right? The whole Me Too stuff, I think, was 2015, 2016 when, when it really broke out. That couldn't have 
made you or anyone else reasonable uh, very happy either. I'm sure that fed into it a bit, right? Yeah, the Me Too thing was really fascinating for me because I had no idea that it was a thing, you know, that's been running for a long time. Like, I think it's important to clarify, I'm not US-centric. Like, I kind of am now because success has led me in that direction, but that's not where my thinking was. So, you know, it's sort of, you know, the Hollywood Reporter... It's a thing, isn't it? Like, now I understand what it is. But it's just like, you know, it's just more noise from America. There's a lot of noise from America. And when you live in other places, you're just sort of like, oh, there's some more noise from America. But, I mean, it did. I think it was, it went international, didn't it? But it blew up. And I think No, 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 I'm saying that. But Me Too movement had been happening for a long time. So, like, but it wasn't until it became a global thing that everyone's just like, oh. Yeah. And that was in October 2017. So I'd been I'd been doing the net for pretty much a year by then, right? And so it, what began as a, a show about the gay marriage debate in Australia by that time, the you know gay marriage had been went to a public vote, and everyone in Australia going, "What are you talking about? Of course we want gay people to get married." They thought the play, you know the the popular vote was going to go in the other way, but people are like, "We're not." Our leaders don't seem to understand the people they're leading, which was a nice moment. Mm-hmm. But it also meant that I shifted the focus in my, you know, the focus in my show. So it used to be mostly about the gay marriage debate with some, you know, sexism sprinkled across it. <laughs> and then it was, it flipped the other way. So it was mostly about then the sexism with gay marriage debate sprinkled across the top of it. And I mean, they're both, so that's what that mo- moment sort of, it validated what I was saying and it was an incredible moment. And were you always from the outset committed to the idea that you're going to lay all of your cards on the table in terms of things that you've had to deal with? Was that all known to your friends and family or was that going to be a big reveal? Yeah, look, it wasn't known and some people knew some things and other people knew other things. And it was, uh, even for my family, they didn't know all the things and that was really hard and I wondered how I could, I knew, I felt like I had to tell them before they saw it, but I couldn't. And when I just thought, I'm like, I'm going to have to throw them in with the, the other, you know, and it was, it was, they, they understood why that happened and we've talked, been able to talk about it since and if anything, we're a lot closer as a family. We're already pretty close, but I feel like I'm, part of the family again in a way that I probably I don't think they felt like I wasn't a part of the family I think I felt like I was not a part of the family and that was as much me withholding as them not knowing you know I had read that basically there were essentially 250 plus times over 18 months when you're performing Nanette starting with the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in 2017, maybe ending, I would think, with the Sydney Opera House performance that we all saw on Netflix. I don't know if you did it beyond that afterwards, or how did it? I did one show after it went on Netflix. Okay. And that was the weirdest experience of my life. (laughs) People were applauding setups. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, geez. Yeah, that would be weird. (laughs) Well, the reason I, I bring up just the you know, people might not get when they watch it on Netflix that this was something that you had been 
as as usually is the case with with stand-ups you'd been honing it you'd been working on it but you also therefore had to tell these deeply personal stories that many times and i wondered was that emotionally brutalizing to yourself or was that cathartic or how did you feel at the end of the day especially i guess at the the one that was actually recorded for netflix i think was the first one from what i've read where your mom did hear the whole thing so just the the what it was like for you to go through this grind of 250 plus performances yeah it was it was pretty full on um (laughs) to put it eloquently and you know I felt like I was doing good but I wasn't always sold that I was doing good for myself and that was I felt compelled to keep performing it because I I just felt, you know, and I was told and people, the response that people gave was just like it felt like I was putting something important out in the world, even if it was for just the people in the room. Like it wasn't me just going, oh, I'm going to change things. It was just like every single room it felt like that. I was playing, I was hoping it was a good long game for myself because in the moment it was excruciating, it was exhausting. There's no way I was even capable of enjoying the success that I was experiencing all of a sudden, you know, sellouts. The first time I performed, Nanette, my manager came down, he's been with me since the beginning, he just said, oh, we're going to sell out Wednesdays with this show. (laughs) (laughs) It's his mark of success. If you can sell out a Wednesday at a festival, you have made it. That's a big day, Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a real big day. So he saw the magic in it before I did, if anything. And I would just like to tip my hat off there. He's a straight white man. So <laughs> acknowledgements where acknowledgements yes. are due. Thank you. We uh, we feel overlooked too often. So I appreciate you I uh, think so. acknowledging I think so. us. I'm here to help. Yeah. Here to yeah. Help. <laughs> yeah. So it was a, you know, but he and we, he gathered a, a team around me to make sure that I was supported through every step of the way because it was grueling. It was, it did take a lot out of me. And, but I'm also a, a bit of a gardener. <laughs> So I, I kind of fra- framed it in a way that it's sort of like you're ripping up and, and, and turning over new soil. And so I was, I was playing the long game going, I think this will be good for me in the long run. And I think it has been. I would imagine, yeah. And and at what point did Netflix enter the picture, which would I, I would assume be a, a very big deal for any comic, but to, for, for <laughs> you, let me let you take that one. Yeah, I'm just chuckling because, you know, in hindsight I realise it's a huge deal. But I was incapable of processing it at the time. That's how great. So it came, you know, I just finished the Edinburgh run and my people did it. Like I wasn't involved in the talks because, you know, like I couldn't talk. Like it was just too much. And so it became like part of that whole thing. And they're like, we'll film it. And like I kind of, but understanding the Netflix deal of it and what that meant, I wasn't quite able to process it. And honestly, I, I didn't think about it until after it aired and I started to get the response in and I'm like, oh, good God, this is, I can't, this is, oh, dear, what have I done? Because <laughs> they filmed just that one performance and probably in a way that it wasn't like right in your face, the cameras or anything. You just did your thing that you'd done 250 plus other times, right? Yeah, well, we're careful when when we did this with Douglas as well. I get very easily distracted and, you know, I can't ignore 
things. So we, the, the camera setup's kind of very deliberate so that it isn't invasive to my, because, you know, it's a live show. I'm a live performer. I'm, you know, we're very, we need to, we like to sort of maintain that. So, yeah, it, I wasn't thinking about the filming. I put a lot of trust in my team and that yeah. helped. I guess I should ask you, who is Madeline Perry? It looks like she's the person that's directed both of your Netflix specials. Was that someone who you knew and trusted already or you had to sort of take a gamble on? I took a gamble. Um, I'm, of course, I knew her the second time around. Yes, right. Um, it's actually, with a show like Nanette, it felt to me very important to have a female director, like incredibly important. And, and, and she didn't necessarily have live filming experience, uh, so we, you know, paired paired her with uh, uh, John Olb, who had more of that experience. But it was kind of really important with me not to abandon the idea of having a director who could not a man, yeah. um, not you know, like because it's like <laughs> in order to change that, you have to take a gamble in a way because you know the, there are people there are you know people with experience. But in order to get experience, you need to have opportunities. So the coupling, uh, yeah, and and as far as using her again, like we it, finding someone to film a special is difficult in in LA because people are busy, people are doing stuff, and uh, we had someone lined up, and they kind of fell through because they got you know a TV series, and you got to go with that. No regrets there. So we decided to go with Madeline again. She gets the job done. <laughs> yeah, no, and also, so. also, you know, it's important for me. Like, I, I like to know, like, new things are difficult for me. And my life was very new, and everything was new. So it was actually really great to have someone I, I felt I could uh, trust. Uh, you know, who listen, who I knew would listen. Well, one last question about that special before I talk about it going out to the world on June nineteenth, twenty eighteen. And the question there is, did you ever? seriously intend to quit comedy or was that sort of just an aspect of the show that you added for whatever other reason in the very beginning yeah because I was burnt out you know but I was not talking to the world I was just talking to the audience that I'd slowly built up over my career that's who I was talking to (laughs) and they believed it they've gone oh you know most of you know there's a lot of people who'd in, in those audiences who'd been there since my first show. So that's who I was talking to when I first wrote it because I, I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. I couldn't keep doing it. I was exhausted. But then also uh, the, it was a conceit in a way because it's like, no, technically what I'm doing is not comedy, so how about I call it not comedy and quit right. and then you right. can deal with your own feelings. Right. But you can't, like Nanette is a comedy because it uses all the tools of comedy. Like it's not a theatre show. It's none of these things because I don't use any tools that would, like every tool I use in Nanette are tools that I've learned how to use by doing comedy and that, that I think is what makes it comedy and not anything else. And moreover, I know from other things you've been interviewed for, you've said, quote, the thing is, I'm not acting. I can't act. That's not that or that's part of the autism thing. I'm unable to filter who I am, close quote. And then another quote that I thought was interesting, quote, let's define what the purpose of comedy is. And that's, I believe, to laugh. And what's the purpose of laughter? Catharsis, to feel better about something. Laughter is not the only way to reach catharsis. So maybe I do stand up catharsis, close quote. So I thought those were 
very uh, well put explanations for anyone who's still having a hard time accepting it as uh, as comedy or labeling it or whatever. But I guess the big day, maybe the biggest day in one of the biggest days in your life, surely has got to be June 19th, 2018. That's the first time this goes on Netflix, meaning it goes to all but like North Korea of all the countries in the world, something like that. How quickly did you realize that it was A, going over in a big way and B, was going to change your life in a in a major way? You just, I just flipped on social media just to have a look. And when some, just the pure volume of turnover hurt my head. <laughs> <laughs> like I, it was, a, it was a flood and I, I got good advice early on with that. That's like, just check out, just don't engage in it. He said, the only thing you need to know about a river is that it's running. You don't right. need to be in it. <laughs> So I kind of clocked off on that, like I knew. And then, of course, you see a billboard with yourself on it and you're like, things have shifted. (laughs) Someone sent me one, someone sent me one today. Apparently I'm on a billboard in Times Square, which is so surreal because no one's in. Right, right. (laughs) But also that image is perfect for me because I hate crowds. That's the only <laughs> Times Square where I could possibly enjoy myself on a billboard in right. Times Square. <laughs> Glad someone's looking over the place at the moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of things, though, surely changed in other ways as well, just in terms of people wanting to not only not only people knowing about you and probably strangers approaching you, but people wanting to work with you and, you know, you're presenting at the Emmys and all kinds of stuff. And I wondered, were you able to enjoy that or were things that you've talked about to do with autism or just uh, any, I don't think any person would have a, maybe a a challenge processing all of that. How did you digest it all? Uh, It's taken me, I'm still digesting. The Emmys was fun. I really enjoyed that because I, I don't think I understood what I was doing until I walked out on stage and I'm like, Oh, yeah, because I just worked on my bit and I did the rehearsals and I'm like, you know, I've done bits and bobs in the past. I know my way around a stage. I know, you know, I understand a live audience. I wasn't worried. But then you just look out and what I understood when I walked out was like, this is the deadest room I've ever (laughs) been in. And I've performed at 4am in Edinburgh, you know, like in front of drunk college students who couldn't even string a sentence together. Right. This room was deader because what I realised, because I was on quite late in the night, yeah. most of the room's disappointed because they haven't won. So the electricity of an awards night in the beginning is because people are still in the game. They're like, oh. Right. And then it's also quite long, so then people are like, oh. And then they're <laughs> exhausted because they have to look happy because they're right. also on show. It's a, it's, right. really, it's a really difficult audience to be in, I'd imagine. And so I walked out on stage and I felt that. And I'm like, oh, there's not many people who still want to be here. <laughs> and, of course, I knew that. Like, even the award I was producing, the person wasn't even in the room. So it wasn't right. even going to be, a, like, I wasn't even going to get a little bit of energy off that guy because he right. was not even there. So it was just like, so that just hit me. And so every, every nerve I had just left me. I'm like, wow, I'll just match <laughs> So what was supposed to be quite a fast routine just became me just like, well, this is not going to work. Like that's why it worked is because I'm like, (laughs) 
This yeah, is it's not stole, gonna work. Stole the show. Um, I and was that the same evening when you won your Emmy for the writing of the net, or was that a a different? Oh no, Emmy? that was that was the year before because I Nanette came out after. That's right. Sorry, yeah, it's all blurring in my mind. After too the now. campaigns, after the campaigns are kicked off. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> well, it's like um, politics. <laughs> it really, yeah, the award season, absolutely. But so yeah, so it's, I didn't go to them last year because I was performing. I wanted to ask you if how the autism diagnosis that you got around the time of, I guess, while Nanette was being uh, worked on, did that change your life in any way? And do you think that in some ways autism may, I hesitate to even say this because it might be a crazy thing, but does having autism make you a better comedian in a way? I think you're more certainly supposedly from what I understand of it, you see things that other people don't see. You're perhaps more observant of other people than, uh, I mean, there just seem to be some things that could feed into comedy. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, comedy is certainly a, a sport for the outsider and nothing puts you on the outside more than having a neurological kink. <laughs> um, but it, it certainly changed my life. Like I was just, while you were asking that question, I noticed that I was sort of rocking and that's a thing I'd never allow myself to do before, even though I'd always do it. And... Knowing that I have autism, I'm now able to process it. Like, I'd be going, don't do that, that looks weird. And now I just go, this is what I do, repetitive movements, help me think, help me calm down and that sort of thing. So what it's done is allowed me to just understand things that I used to be kind of ashamed or confused by, incorporate that into my understanding of myself and then turn a less critical lens on myself and turn it outwards. You know, I think it's also important to keep that critical lens turned on myself, particularly as I sort of gained popularity and with that power. But I think as far as my autism is concerned, it's, it's been a, once, you know, I've understood it a lot better, you know, it's helped me be a lot kinder to myself. Mm. So without even naming it, because I don't know how early on you named it, how soon after Nanette did you sit down and start working on the follow-up? Because I would imagine that there might have been some pressure, to say the least, that how do you follow something that was such a phenomenon as the net? And in the beginning of Douglas, you certainly kind of acknowledged the elephant in the room that, you know, sorry, guys, I used all my trauma and that kind of thing. But was the process of creating Douglas any different from the net? Did you feel a different sort of pressure than you had with the net? Just curious about the gestation. Yeah, and it's it's kind of the, you know, given the content of Nanette, like it's easily, it's pressure I could handle. Yes. You know, <laughs> like, uh, but, all, you know, I, I kind of figured that whatever I did was going to just be compared to Nanette. And I was so exhausted after Nanette and my life had changed so much and it felt very unsteady and I felt very unsafe. I figured the best thing for me to do is to do what I know how to do. You know, like I'm good at what I do because I've, it's a craft and I know how to, you know, say what I want to say and how I want to say it, not necessarily. So even if Douglas, people didn't like Douglas and that remains to be seen, it's not my job to like it. I push the boat out, it's now out in the world. But even if Douglas sort of is a, is a failure, nobody could deny that I'm good at what I do, you know, like, that's, you know, I could disappoint people because it's not what they expected and all these things, but I just wanted to do a show that I knew how to do so people go, 
Oh, she knows. If I'd have then just gone after Nanette gone, you know what, I might try a TV show. That's a whole group of skill sets I'd have to learn quickly. And then all that pressure would be looking at me doing something I didn't know how to do. And also doing comedy is a safe place for me. I know how to do it, so there's a familiarity to it. And with the success of Nanette, it meant that I could do it on my terms so I could create a tour that was less stressful than my usual get about. So it was a, I think, and I think, you know, now that it's done and dusted, I think it was the right decision for me to make at that time. And just to, for our listeners to know the, the timing of this, we're talking on May 27th, a Wednesday. This went out yesterday to the world, May 26th, Douglas here in, uh, yeah, I think all around the world. From what I understand, it's gone over great. I don't know if you if you read up on reactions or anything like that, but you know, it's it's obviously, as you acknowledge, very different, but also very bold in its own ways. I mean, there there's not many comedy specials that I'm aware of where you kind of somebody comes out and in the opening of it essentially sets the lays out what everything else is gonna be and then has to live up to that. And, you know, something like that was I'm sure a, a decision. A decision to quote myself. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a that's a it's a really fun. We'll call it a device, but it's also very autistic. Mm. And from just the you know, particularly on the tour, and now that it's been out in the world a little bit, um, I've got a big response from people on the spectrum going, oh, "It's so autistic." Like <laughs> the other people responding to it are going, "Oh, this is a neat device. This is interesting." But people on the spectrum are recognizing it. Well, and you know, I, somehow uh, the thing that it reminded me of, there's a, there's another person who is not in the comedy world, but another very smart person who I admire and like a lot, Rachel Maddow. I don't know if you ever watch her program, but the thing that she, some people give her a hard time about, but a lot of other people love is the way she takes her time easing into her show each night where there's some setup and you're trying to figure out what does this even have to do with anything. She could begin by saying, you know, it, in 1968, Toledo, Ohio. So, and then you get to the connection. Yeah. So I, I found yeah. that thinking about that. Yeah. That's high praise. I think that's high praise. I think also in, in, in this world, you know, well, we're very, like we stop listening very quickly and you've got to give Rachel kudos for playing. Like that's a bold move. Cause there's, you know, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, you know, it's, there's so much content. Um, but, you know, it's also a, a breath of fresh air. I, yeah. I, so it is a similar way. I make connections. I play, a, you know, some things don't seem like they should connect and I make that connection. That's that's part of my autism. Yeah. I don't know that Rachel has autism. I don't think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, last thing I will ask you here, because I appreciate all your time. I just want to quote back to you one of the lines that I think resonated the most with people from the net. And that was quote, there is nothing stronger than a broken woman who has rebuilt herself, close quote. So as someone who has obviously rebuilt herself in a major way, I guess I want, I'd wonder if we can leave this with just, you know, do you now feel stronger than you did whatever it was two years ago or so when that went out to the world? And what do you now hope now that you have a large audience for your work what do you hope the long-term impact of your work will be? Yeah, I certainly feel stronger. There's, uh, there's nothing about, I mean, you can't underestimate the healing power of financial security. Like I just, I've been homeless and this is, I now, I now own a home and I can't, 
it's just brilliant and that helps strength like I think with Nanette I was strong but I was I was spoiling for a fight like I was still scrappy and, mm. and now it's like oh I can take a breath and you know if you want to keep strong it's important to be able to take a breath and I yeah. think for the first time in a long time in my adult life I've been able to inhale it's great long term look I I don't know I think what I think the power of Nanette is and what I hope it is is that it it has the ability to reach into people's brains and stir it up. And I hope, the hope is that then other people will create stuff. You know, in the scheme of things, Nanette might be forgotten. That's a job for historians. But in, you know, if anyone's even interested. But, you know, the hope is when you create something is not the, how people receive it and it stops. It's how people receive it and where they run with it. Yeah. Well, I... I- Thank you so much for doing this and for the two fascinating specials. I wish I had had the chance to see the earlier work as well, but Maybe I'll do a I, I, I missed the boat. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you again and uh, stay safe. Thank you. You too. You stay safe. Bye. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.